Well, as our year draws to a close, we are just two weeks away from the season that we call Advent, that season of waiting and preparation, the season in which we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's first coming and also to look with anticipation for the Lord's second coming when he comes again to make a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the church year actually begins on the first Sunday of Advent. It all begins with God's promise to come to his people. And so we reset our clocks and we reset our calendars and we reset our hearts for, to, to revolve around that reality, the reality that God has come to us in Jesus to be with us and to be our Savior. That is our hope and our joy as Christian people. God has come and he has saved us. So today, our, our readings are drawing this year to a close. And the readings can kind of sound a little spooky. Do they sound a little spooky to you? Raise your hand if they sound spooky. Okay, so one person agrees with me that it sounds spooky today. <laughs> huh? Say what? Lots of us did? Okay, I didn't, see, I didn't see lots of hands. I just saw one. But that was okay. It was good. A good reaffirmation that I'm not alone in being spooked. But uh, rather then allow us to be drawn into all the many theories about what the end of days is going to be like. Uh, that, what, that, whole, that whole topic called eschatology. Um, what I think we ought to do instead. I'm no expert on that. Matter of fact, it was funny because I was talking to the pastor that meets before this service does. And um, he just was dealing with the seven bowls of revelation and, uh, in this morning's sermon. So if you'd like to go down that road and investigate all that stuff, tune into their podcast that'll be up online later on. You can hear all about it. Instead of that, what we're going to do here is we're going to allow these readings to encourage us um, and to spur us on in our daily walk with Jesus, to cause us to be filled with hope and cause us to be encouragers of one another, to live a faithful life in Jesus. So, if you remember last week, Jesus has come to the temple. He's cursed the fig tree, which stands as a symbol of the temple. And then he drove out the money changers and those who were buying and selling animals in the temple. They were all set up in, that, in the only place in the temple that people like us, Gentiles, could come to worship God. And they had made that space, that space set up for the nations into a, into a house of, of, of commerce. And he was angry about this. And then he watched as the temple allowed a poor woman to put her last two coins into the temple treasury. All she had to live on. And then Jesus announced that the temple would be destroyed. He pronounced judgment on the temple because instead of taking care of people, it was taking care of itself. But everything in this life is about loving God and loving people. Remember the great commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God and loving everyone created in his image. But the leaders of the Jewish people had allowed religion to be distorted into law-keeping rather than people-keeping. And they had allowed it to become about taking care of the temple rather than taking care of people. But the truth is, the law is not made in God's image people are. And the temple is not made in God's image. People are. And so Jesus, God among us, God in the flesh, came and he judged his temple and the leaders of his people. And he announced the temple's destruction. This is major. This is major business. 
folks. I mean, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it was, it was begun with Mark referencing Isaiah and referencing Malachi. And it was all about God coming. God's going to come, Mark was saying. And in the Isaiah passage, he was going to comfort some. But in the Malachi passage, he was coming to judge the priests of the people of Israel. So it's all happening. And as, as this gospel is coming to a close, we see God, he has arrived, and now he has pronounced judgment. Of course, all along the way, remember, he's been healing the people. Does that make sense? Okay, all right. Now, right after he has judged his temple and he's announced his destru- its destruction, the disciples of Jesus ask him, well, when is all this going to happen? When, what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And how does Jesus answer their question? Notice that they didn't ask about the end of time. They didn't ask about the apocalypse. They asked, when is the temple going to be destroyed? And his answer is this. Well, he describes a world in which lots of people are saying that they have the answer. In which lots of people claim to be able to offer a salvation apart from God. He describes a world in which bad things happen to people. Bad things happen to good people. Tornadoes and hurricanes and earthquakes take place. And wars between nations are raging. And people are starving because there's famine on the earth. And what kind of a world does that sound like to you? You don't have to imagine some distant apocalyptic future, do you? Neither did the disciples. Because the world that Jesus described... Well, that sounds a lot like our world. Sounds a lot like the world that we live in right now. This world. It sounds like the world that human beings have been living on since history was written. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't let anyone lead you astray. No matter how bad the world gets, don't let anyone lead you astray. In this life, bad stuff is going to happen, Jesus says. There's going to be crazy stuff going on. You're going to hear about it. But don't let anyone lead you astray. And then he says that all of those things, all the hard things in this life, all the injustice and the pain, all of that stuff, he says that it's just the sign of the beginning of the birth pangs. Okay. Some among us can tell us about birth pangs, right? Moms among us know what birth pangs are about. What comes after birth pangs? What comes after birth pangs? New life, new reason to have joy. In the midst of all the trouble that will come in this life, Jesus calls us not to be led astray, but to trust, trust in him, to let, never let us go. As hard as life gets, no matter what happens in the future, our hope comes not from the powerful in this world, not from the promise of would-be saviors, but from Jesus. And he warns us not to be led astray. And why should we have such hope. Why should we have that kind of hope? Well, because of what we heard in our reading from Hebrews. Listen, listen to this. I'm just going to read it to you. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And why? Why does he say we should hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because he who is promised is faithful. That's our hope. Not this world, not this nation, not our president, not our bank accounts, not the temple in Jerusalem, not a church, but Jesus. 
our great high priest. And why? Because he's faithful and he's redeemed us. And so we can approach God with confidence and we can face this life with all of its troubles and trials and tribulations with hope and with joy. All right, now I'm going to take a completely different turn in this, in this, in this little talk, okay? Since I've had children, I've been reminded of that sinister joy that you get when you provoke your brother or sister to anger. Do you remember that? How many of you have had, grew up with, with siblings and you just knew how to push their buttons? Do you remember this, right? I mean, if you had that, it was one of the best things in your life. You looked forward to it. It drove your parents crazy, but you wanted to do it. And you looked for opportunities to push their buttons and you knew just what buttons to push. It was like a built-in instinct. You came pre-programmed, specially made to be able to push those buttons, and you know it. And it made you so happy. I see it happening with my own kids. Um, They can drive each other nuts. They can just absolutely do it. And it's often over something really dumb, like this. Uh, One child will start singing a song with the wrong lyrics on purpose to drive the other child crazy. That's not how the song goes. You know, and they're fighting and they're throwing at each other and the parents are driving saying, please sing the song the right way so she'll stop freaking out about it. And this is crazy, you know. Or this morning, um, I, two, our, our two boys, um, they were making these Lego things and our youngest boy decided he wanted the Lego thing that he had seen the older boy playing with last night, the last thing he was playing with. And so first thing in the morning, William gets up, grabs that one. His is sitting right over here. I mean, it's the same thing, but he grabs his. And in at about six o'clock in the morning, our oldest comes in, oh, he's got my toy. I was like, you know what? Please give him his toy or just reconfigure the Legos into the same toy. It's just pieces. You can put them together. You can do it. Oh. Well, I remember doing that with my, with my sisters. Uh, I, I like doing that to my wife sometimes. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Uh, like I, here's an example of something that I like to do. You know, we've driven seven hours to Disney World, and then we get to the gate, and then I look at her and say, Where the, do you have the tickets? Which drives her crazy, you know, because she's like, why would I have the tickets? You're supposed to have the tickets. Don't tell me now. Our kids are going to freak out if we can't go in because you didn't bring the tickets. And she looks at me like, You're, I'm going to kill you. She's better. She's, she's not as gullible now. But at her, early on in our relationship when we were married, it was one of my favorite things to do. It's built into us to like to provoke each other, right? <laughs> we love it. All right, now look at the way our reading from Hebrews ends. Look at, look at what it says. Look at what this guy says. And let us consider how to provoke one another. Isn't that amazing? That Christians are supposed to be in the business of provoking each other. We come built in with, with instincts knowing how to provoke each other. And then in the Bible it tells us that we're supposed to, but not to anger and bitterness and frustration, but to love and good deeds. Let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. What does God want us to do? He he wants us to provoke each other, just like kids, but not to anger. He wants us to provoke each other to love and to good deeds, encouraging each other, and all the more as we see the day when God will come approaching. So how can we do it? 
How can we get good at pushing each other's buttons? How can we cultivate in our hearts a love of provoking each other to love and good deeds? Brothers and sisters just know how to do it instinctively because they know each other so well. And that's what it's going to take for us. We've got to know each other, not neglecting to meet together, but meeting often for worship and for study of God's word. And as we grow in our love of each other, we'll get good at provoking each other. We'll know how to push each other's buttons to love and good works. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wants us to do in the midst of this life with all of its troubles. We're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars, and we might even find ourselves engulfed in them. And life is going to be hard, and people are going to try to lead us astray. And they'll tell us to put our hope in lots of things. But our hope is not in those other things. Our hope is in Jesus, our great high priest, because in the midst of this life, he's the faithful one, and we can trust him. And our call as Christians is to be a family of brothers and sisters provoking one another to love and good works. And that's something, if we, if we get good at being that kind of a family, then that's something that people will want to be part of. Everyone wants to be part of a loving family. Everyone wants to be part of that kind of love and trust and joy. And that's who we're meant to be as Christians. A loving family full of these brothers and sisters who push each other's buttons and know just the way to provoke one another to love and good works. And we should be doing that all the more as we see the day approaching, as we look forward, especially with Advent coming, with eager expectation for the day when the Lord will come again. Amen.